0: As well, uh, But I want to take some time and review a little bit of, of where we've been. A, remi- a reminder that I, I want to just make clear is the theme of this book that Paul is calling us to is that we would grow up into maturity. And then he, he gives us kind of this picture of what, of what maturity would look like. And it's when we, we, we live uh, characterized as having a clear view and hope in the love of Jesus, that Jesus is above all things. Jesus is greater than all things. He's above all things, but he's also close enough that we can trust him in every, in every moment. And so if you remember, Paul prayed over the church. Uh, Paul prayed for them. He had never been at this church. The pastor is Epaphras. Uh, Epaphras is with Paul in prison, sharing with him what's going on. Paul has been praying for this group of people, and now he writes this letter to them. And he gives them this beautiful picture of what Jesus is like. You remember in, uh, in, in chapter 1, just the, this cosmic view of Jesus who is over all things. Uh, and then uh, a couple of weeks ago, uh, I was talking to you about um, Jesus and uh, how Jesus leads us. Uh, and in that pathway to maturity, to see him as above all things and in every moment, we walk through Times of suffering and times of struggle on our path towards maturity, and then the other thing that Jesus does is he leads us. Uh, he leads us um, to maturity not only through suffering, but he leads us through maturity through community. And so, Pastor Eric gave you a call last week to uh, to not be alone in your spiritual journey, uh, to be journeying with some others. Uh, and so, this week, what we're going to see is that. The pathway to maturity is one that has significant opposition. that we are in a battle for us to get to from where we are to what God has designed us to be. And so I want to read I want to read to you the passage uh, and we're going to be in Colossians chapter 2 8 to 15. and I'm going to ask you to stand up with me uh, as I read God's word that we will study. this is just an incredible passage of scripture, and I might say that every week, but I mean it every time, all right? This is just a beautiful, beautiful passage, one of my my favorites, Uh, so so please listen as we get brought into the battleground that is the world we live in. Verse 8, see to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, Having been buried with him in baptism in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. And you who were dead in your trespasses and uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him And I pray, Father, that what we would do is orient our minds, our thoughts, our decisions, our affections around the proclamation of truth. God, you have given us insight into what are eternal realities. So in this present world, may we live according to what you have said to be true. True of you true of our world and true of us. So may faith rise up here, Jesus. In your name I pray, amen. You can have a seat. So as I said, I think you see that the the battle is on. One of the things that I've learned uh, is that events uh, that mark uh, trauma uh, often lead us back to what is our foundation, to what is core. So when we talk about the battle being on, those are, that's, the, those are traumatic events. And when we face traumatic events, it leads us back to what is our foundation. Let me, let me tell you what I mean. Do you remember where you were when this happened? Like I, I remember, I was in Linwood. I was driving up Route 9. I was a truck driver working part-time at the church, making deliveries on my way up to Atlantic City to deliver some car parts. And I heard it on the radio. And all of a sudden, instead of just driving this way, I'm looking up at the sky. Right, Like, the, the world changed for me September 11th, 2001, and it did for many of you. We, I got up to um, uh, this this auto parts precision auto, and I walked in, and nobody was there to greet me. None of the salesmen, all of the salesmen, all of the mechanics, all the customers were huddled around the television as we watched the second plane uh, hit the uh, uh, as we saw the second plane hit the second tower, and we watched it together. and And so that, like, I, I can I can remember in vivid detail that delivery i can't remember any other delivery from 2001 but i can remember that one so that that trauma that that marked it for me and and do you remember that time after september 11th 2001 and and our country was there was a, a degree of unity in our country that I hadn't experienced before. There was a degree of of patriotism. There was churches that were filled with people that were that were praying. And even in this slide, um, in honor and remembrance, and you know, people started to think, okay, there, there's there, like it's unsafe out there. I better hang on to what is what is foundational for me. Right? So we started to grab hold of things that were things that were foundational. I can remember when trauma hit in 2009, August 13th, 2009, uh, my son Julian was born uh, and Julian lived for 87 minutes. I can remember details about that day and several days leading up to that as trauma entered my uh, my world and, and my family. And I remember for a while, the church was very gracious to me, and and they allowed me kind of to pull back in a number of different different areas and different responsibilities. And uh, I remember starting to kind of emerge out of that uh, later that fall and into the early part of 2010. Um, But I remember leading classes, and I'll be honest, if you were in any of the classes I was leading or if I was discipling you, I didn't have a heck of a lot of patience because I got to like this is what really matters. I don't care about all this trivial junk. That's a nice word. Trivial junk that that we're talking about here. Let's let's get to what is foundational. Let's get to what is core. Let's let's stop wasting our time with with unnecessary frivolous things, right? So this so, so trauma, so pain, had this way of, uh, of solidifying what was, what was most essential. Well, that's exactly what is going on in our passage today. In Colossians 2 eight to 15, we find out that we are in a world at war. We are in a battle. And in that battle, Paul's going to give us a warning, but then he's going to bring us back to, listen, in this battle, you have got to hang on to what is foundational. In a time of shaking, you've got to know what is the unshakable stuff. What is the, what is the foundation? And that's, that's what Paul is going to lead us through uh, this morning. So the first thing he says in verse 8, he introduces us to this to this battle, he says, "See to it that no one takes you captive. No one takes you captive." The 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 verb here, uh, take captive. It's it's a rare one, but it is battle language. It is don't become a prisoner of war. Don't be held captive. So Paul is giving a warning about captivity in your pursuit from immaturity to maturity, that's what God is doing in your life. Along that journey, be careful, don't be taken a prisoner of war, don't be taken captive, heads up, the battle is on. So whether we like it or not, the language here is not ambiguous, it is clear, we are in a world that is at war. A.W. Tozer, uh, which is one of the few, um, you know, we quote from a lot of people around here. We don't get to quote from many CMA people because we don't have a lot of Christian and Missionary Alliance theologians. Like, this is our one guy. So here's our one CMA uh, theologian that we can quote. But he said this, people think of the world not as a battleground, but as a playground. Where we're not here to fight, we are here to frolic. We are not in a foreign land, we are at home. We are not getting ready to live, but we are already living. And the best we can do is rid ourselves of inhibitions and frustrations and live this life to the full. Right? What he's pointing to is we have this, this, this lie that we bought into that we're not in a world at war. But, but the clear New Testament picture is we are not home yet. We are sojourners, we are aliens And while there will be gifts of God's grace and God's mercy as we walk this planet, this is not all there is. God is leading us to more. So he says, see to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy. Now, I don't believe Paul's concern here is philosophy in general, and let me tell you why. The Bible is full of philosophy. Philosophy is the love of wisdom, right? So we have sections of the Old Testament that are called wisdom literature. God loves wisdom. That is the the, the definition of philosophy. The earliest written book, you know what the earliest written book is in the Old Testament? Chronologically, the, the topic is Genesis, but the earliest written book that they believe was the book of Job, which is a wisdom book on the topic of suffering, right? The the book of Ecclesiastes, also wisdom literature, dealing with the futility of life that doesn't connect its value or purpose beyond what we can see in creation. That if the only thing that you can anchor yourself to is under heaven, then it is all vanity. You've got to anchor yourself to something that is bigger than created order. The book of Proverbs is training in wisdom, and all of this wisdom literature even predates what uh, in in culture would say that the origin of philosophy would have been the Greeks. I would argue that we have some good uh, Hebrew philosophical thought predating that. But that would have, but even those early manuscripts that's only six hundred. BC, so when you get into uh, Anaximander, Thales, Pythagoras, some of you math people remember that, uh, remember that name. Um, Socrates was around 400, right? So I don't think Paul is coming against philosophy in general. He's not opposed to it. He loves wisdom. He proclaims wisdom. He prays for wisdom. But I think there's... uh, There's a connection between his description of wisdom and then three qualifiers for the type, I'm sorry, uh, three qualifiers for the type of philosophy that he's talking about. And that's a philosophy that is characterized by empty deceit, human tradition, and the elemental principles of the world. So let's look at what these three things are so we know what to be wary of in terms of being held captive Right In the middle of the war that we're in, where we're not taken as prisoners of war by philosophy that would be characterized as empty deceit. Now, this is a double condemnation. First of all, it's empty. That means it's without content, without any basis, without any truth. I'm going to step on my shoelace. While that would be entertaining for you, it would be distracting for me. It may be painful. All right, so empty deceit. Without content, there is no basis, no power. It is empty. And it's also characterized as deceit. And what is deceit? Where it pretends to be something that it is not. Where it tends to, pretends to offer life, pretends to offer security, pretends to offer hope, but as you grab hold of it, there's nothing there. It is empty deceit. Or this is a philosophy that is characterized according to human tradition. Human tradition. Now, uh, Judaism that had gotten uh, exported throughout the Roman world was called Hellenistic Judaism or Greek Judaism or maybe what we would call secular Judaism. And often it called itself a philosophy, that would be based on human tradition. So Paul could be referring to uh, this this human tradition, which would have been a form of Judaism that kind of cut God out of the picture and emphasized just the tradition of men or the teaching of the rabbis. But I think Paul is intentionally ambiguous. We don't know if he's just referring to that or if he's referring to that and other philosophies that would be based on human tradition now i want you to be careful here the problem isn't with tradition there's a qualifier listed here what's the qualifier it's a human tradition and again we're getting back to things that would be earth locked earth bound it is according to a human expectation of tradition it's Origin and scope is human, not divine. And, and this is true, and you'll see this. Just pay attention to it in, in philosophies or advertising or, or different things, how quickly we can get sucked into believing something's true because it's old, because they found some kind of manuscript or, or a piece of archaeological evidence. Or, and we say, oh, well, if that happens, then it must be true. Right, how, how quickly something can be rooted in something of a human origin. But again, I want you to see that our faith is not rooted in an ancient tradition, but an eternal tradition. The things that we believe existed before God started marking out time with suns and moons and uh, revolution and rotation. Jesus actually condemns uh, Jesus condemns uh, the Pharisees in Mark 7 along these same lines. And look what he says. You have let go of the commands of God. So he juxtap- juxtaposes, it's a weird word. I don't know why I chose that one, right? The commands of God against human traditions, right? So the commands of God, this would be, the stuff of eternal perspective, which comes from the mouth of God outside of of the bounds of creation. This is God-ordained stuff versus human traditions. And so they let go of one in favor of the other. So Paul is warning against philosophies that will hold you captive that are earthbound philosophies just simply based on human tradition. Watch out. And then the third category that he points to of this dangerous philosophy that can hold you captive in the time of war is that it is according to the elemental spirits or principles of the world. Now, this is a very odd and debated phrase. Um, But as I kind of studied it through, and I won't take the time to explain how I came to the conclusion I came to, but as I studied it through, the, the best that I can surmise is that this indicates some sort of power structure that exists, and the power structure that exists has something to do with angels and demons as part of that particular power structure. So to the warning is, don't be held captive by philosophies, right that are according to lies, right or strongholds or misinformation that has been perpetrated by authority structures from the spiritual world, from the spiritual realm. Now, uh, it, this is important for us to, to make sure that the reality of spiritual battle, spiritual influence, angels and demons, it's part of our worldview. It's part of the biblical framework that makes sense of the world that we live in, that there are these power structures that exist and there are demonic influences. And I think C.S. Lewis gives us a good orientation uh, around this theme, and he said this, there are two equal and opposite errors into which our race can fall about the devils or about uh, Satan and demons. One is to disbelieve in their existence. The other is to believe and to feel an excessive and unhealthy interest in them. And what we wanna do is avoid either extreme, right? We don't want to, we don't want to parent and miss the fact that there is a spiritual war over the hearts and minds of our children. We don't want to disciple and miss the fact that there is oppressive demonic influence that is intent on stealing, killing, and destroying the glory and fame of God in the individual that we love. I mean, you, you look around the, the the world around us and we see just the influence of Just brokenness beyond what you and I could conjure up on our own. But we also don't want to go to the other extreme and say every problem we face is the result of demonic influence and not our own stupidity. If your car doesn't start, you might not need to exercise the demon out of it. Maybe you forgot to put gas in it. Right? Like, so, so we want to avoid either one of those extremes. Jesus said of Satan, the thief comes only to steal, kill, and destroy. I have come that you might have life, have it to the full. That's John 10.10. 10. Satan is also known as the tempter, the oppressor, the deceiver. John 8.44 calls him the father of lies. Satan and his demons are in a spiritual battle with God's angels for the control of the eternal destiny of human souls. Look at 1 Peter 5. Be alert, sober minded. Your enemy, the devil, your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. Resist him, standing firm in the faith. He's calling us to arms. He's calling us to battle. Resist him, standing firm in the faith. And then he normalizes it. Because you know that the family of believers throughout the world is undergoing the same kind of sufferings. Like, this isn't weird, guys. This is the way that it is. You live in a world at war, you have an enemy that is seeking your destruction. And so we are called to discern, test the spirits. And I would be, I'll just be honest with you, if there's something you're like, I, I'm sensing there's something, there's something going on. God has given us as a church family, right, the spiritual gifts of discerning of spirits. And there's people that will be willing to come around you and pray with you and try and discern along with you what, what's going on. And if that's you, I would encourage you at the end of the service— Come up and, and let's pray for you, but also let's connect you with some of those people that can come alongside to, to discern with you what's the nature of the enemy that you, are, that you are facing. So there are these elementary principles of the world that are intent on distorting the glory of God that is in you. So Paul warns them about these philosophies that are characterized by these three things. They're, 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 they're empty, they're empty philosophies, right? They are according to human di- tradition and they're according to the elementary principles of the world. That's what characterizes them. Then he says, now let me give you one clue that doesn't characterize these philosophies that will lead you to be held captive. That there are philosophies actually that propel, propel you into freedom. And then he says, um, All of these negative philosophies, they're not according to Christ, for in him the fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you have been filled in him who is the head and rule and authority. And the real test for any of these philosophies is what do they do in encouraging you towards Jesus? What do they do in encouraging you to to know him, to hope in him, to trust in him? Do these philosophies point you to the need for a savior? Do they point you to the hope of Jesus or do they point you to the hope of yourself, to your inner being, to your inner chi? Do they point you to you or do they point you to him? Where are they leading you? For it's Christ who embodies the secret of the cosmos, the secret of history. And if they're not pointing you to Jesus, then they will ultimately hold you captive. So, I've actually been in spaces and times with interacting with people who were facing some things related to the demonic. And and at that point, they couldn't even call out to Jesus. Jesus. Like, we could have a rational conversation, very logical conversation, but when it went to, let's, let's talk to Jesus, there was this, uh, they were stuck. Because what they believed was pointing to a hope that was opposed to, opposed to Jesus. Now, you might be asking, which is a great, like, Bible study tool to ask, is what was this particular church facing that Paul needed to write this letter? What was, the, what was the philosophy that they were dealing with? And, you know, if you have a study Bible, they're going to offer you uh, some suggestions. If it's a good Bible study, uh, study Bible, they'll offer you multiple suggestions. Um, but some will just say, well, it was, uh, it was some form of stoicism. It was some form of legalistic Judaism. And the reality is we don't really know. We can, we can guess that there was some sort of a, a lie that was being perpetrated that was holding them captive and taking them off of the track from being reconciled to God towards growing in maturity. Something was holding them captive. Exactly what it was, we're not 100% sure because Paul doesn't tell us. So we can guess, we can speculate, and I think that's helpful to try and, and sort it out. But the reality is we don't, we don't know for sure. So the problem or the prolemic at the church in Colossae is not, is not specific, right? But for us, it, it becomes then general. And one of the things I like about that is it reminds me of, well, that's kind of part of our job in every day and age is to look at the philosophy of the world around us to help us point out what are the things that will take us off track, what are the things that are, that are empty and deceptive? What are some of the things that, that seem to be based on a, a human tradition? Or what are some of the elementary principles of the world that will hold us captive? Let me offer to you what I think within our culture is one of those philosophies that if we allow ourselves to be seduced by it, it will ultimately hold us captive. It will hinder us from being able to move forward into maturity. And I don't know how to say this exactly right, but I think the battle that we are facing within our culture is a battle for absolute truth. It's a battle for the existence of values that exist apart from my feeling about those values. What I just said flies in the face of the culture we live in. Because the culture we live in would say, there are no values that are outside of you that are bigger than you. The values have to be what you desire them to be, you feel them to be. Those are the values that you are beholden to. So culturally, we don't have space for absolute truth beyond our subjective feel. Our absolute truth is how we feel or perceive something to be. That's the philosophy that we are are raising our children in. That's the philosophy that we are serving our neighbors in. That's That's the world that we are currently part of. So on social issues, on issues of religion, on issues of of the differences between men and women, on issues of sexuality, we can't impose values on those things. It has to be how we feel about those things. So we start changing definitions of words based on us. So culturally, we don't have space for absolute truth beyond our subjective feel of reality. And the thing that our culture hates the most and one of the reasons there's a growth in the trend of people that would say they're nons, so that means they're, they have no religious affiliation, is because of the rise of intolerance. And religious affiliation would be a, an association with people that believe a certain set of beliefs and values and the rise in the value of we can't have that values we can't have uh, absolute truth, leads people to say, then I don't want anything to do with that group of people. So there's a rise in not people that have left the church, but a rise just simply in people that have no religious affiliation either way. Now, and I'm aware of the irony that exists within our culture when we say that the, the only value is intolerance, and yet our culture is intolerant of someone they perceive to be intolerant. I realize that there's a, there's a great irony uh, that exists there. But can I just say this one thing? If I could just have a little caveat here. Like I know, and I wanna teach, and I wanna preach in the reality of absolute truth that, that exists apart from my feelings or perspectives. Right? That, that there are things that are true, that God is, and that changes everything. Now, however, I think often our culture isn't reacting simply to the fact that we have values. I think often our culture is reacting to the packaging by which we communicate those values. I think our culture is often offended by the ugly finger that points in their face and brings condemnation, and from the standpoint of our high horse of righteous values. And I think we have the position that if we have values, to be people that are willing to listen, people that are willing to love, people that are willing to have conversations and dialogue around our values, but do that in a way that is civil and loving. I mean civil discourse in our culture is like you know like a unicorn. Like I, where where does that exist? But if we as the church of God people who are principled, are rooted in truth can actually package that truth in love, which by the way is the command, speak the truth in love, I think we have an opportunity a powerful platform to make inroads into our culture if we would do it in a loving way. And I have seen this happen over and over again. Where if you're willing to bring the truth, but you're willing to sit down, you're willing to engage, you're willing to love, it doesn't always win the day, but it sure gets a lot further. Anyway, I'll get off my soapbox. Get back to... Uh, Colossians 3. But I think that's the that's some of the warnings for the philosophy that could hold us, hold us captive. Uh, my next slide, do I have it? Is there a counterfeit slide there? Thought we had the image. No? Okay. So um, I had a really great image to make my next point, and now it's gone. But let me try and explain it to you. So what Paul's gonna do right now is he's gonna turn the corner, and he had just said, "Like, watch out for the counterfeit, watch out for the, the empty, watch out for the fake, and in watching out for what is false, he says the way that you get to know that is really to know what is true. And so just like I said, in facing trauma, we get anchored in what is true. Well, Paul is gonna bring us back to what is what is foundational, what is absolute truth that we need to hang on to in the middle of the war that we are in. And uh, if you know Paul, he's gonna come back to Jesus. So here's, here's three pictures of relationship with Jesus that are foundational to truth. The first picture is one of circumcision. I didn't bring any pictures of circumcision. You can be thankful for that. So in him, you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of flesh by the circumcision, Of Christ. So circumcision is a picture of a death. It is a picture of a a piece of skin that is that is literally cut. It's cut off. And the sign of circumcision was a sign of entrance into the covenant community, into the community of God's people. And so in the Old Testament, a mark of being a male uh, that was part of God's family was through was through circumcision. And so Paul describes being part of the new family of God as one where we go through circumcision, but it's not a physical circumcision. It is a circumcision made without hands by putting off of the body of flesh by the circumcision of Christ. So Christ, right, offered his body, sacrificed his body, Right? There was the, the, the pound of flesh was taken from him on his sacrifice, and what God is saying to us is the circumcision of our heart where we die to an old way of living. We are cut off from what used to give us life. And so that is the circumcision of our heart. And it is a circumcision um, of the heart uh, that makes us part of the new family of God, So I think the first image Paul wants to give us is as we are in wartime, as he's saying, listen, be careful of deceptive philosophies and remember the circumcision of your heart where your flesh is cut off, your old way is gone, and you are part of a new family. So remember, you're part of a new family. The second, the second picture he's going to give us is that we have been buried with him in baptism and then also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. He's giving us the picture of baptism. And in the picture of baptism, it is a picture of death. You're buried with him, right? So the, so the symbol of baptism is you die with Christ, but if you unite with him in his death, you also unite with him in his resurrection and you live with him. You are resurrected from the dead. So the second point that uh, that Paul is wanting to make about the foundation during wartime is remember you have died to an old way and you are alive to a new way. You are alive to God. Resurrection power is on your side and that is really good news because you're gonna walk through some things where you cannot possibly conceive of of there being life that comes from this. Like the landscape just looks all dead, but we believe in a God of resurrection power. So you united with him in his death, you will unite with him in his life. So baptism is the second picture in a world at war that we need to hang on to. And you're seeing all of these are focusing on Jesus. It is a circumcision that's made with him. Uh, It is a baptism of our union with him. It is all about him. So in wartime, remember, you are alive to God. Third picture. is one of the most vivid for me just images of what happened on the cross so he starts out with and you and you let's let me get your attention here and you hey church in Colossae, you church and in, in vineland you pay pay attention and you this is what you were you were dead in your trespasses and in the uncircumcision of your flesh You were spiritually dead. Children that grow up in the church, hear me, you are not saved by virtue of your parents' faith. Right, by by sin that you have inherited, by sin that you have committed, you too are dead in your trespasses and sins. And that was sobering on Ash Wednesday to put ashes on the forehead of children and say, you know, from ashes you've come to ashes you will return. Well, we don't do that in parenting. Hey, let me remind you of how frail you are. Let me remind you of how broken you are. Like, we don't do, we do the opposite. Wow, look how strong, look how amazing, look how wonderful. But the truth of the matter is Right? While those things are true, there's also this other truth that we are dead in our trespasses and sins. In the uncircumcision of our flesh, we are spiritually dead apart from God. Thankfully, the verse keeps going. But God made us alive together with him, having forgiven all of our trespasses. He made us alive together with him. What was broken, what was lost in our rebellion, all of us, right? In Jesus, God makes us alive together in him. How does he do that? Having forgiven us all of our trespasses. Like he deals with the thing that separates us from God, namely our rebellion. He cancels it. He, he, and, and here's a, a big word, right? Hopefully you're seeing it. God made us um, alive together with him, having forgiven all our trespasses. Not most. He deals with all of our sin, all of the sin that we've committed in our past, all of the sin that we've. Will commit in our future, he deals with all of our sin. That's how he makes us alive together with God. He deals with our sin. And how does he deal with it? Well, he deals with it by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. He set aside, nailing it to the cross. Now, let me explain this very powerful picture. So he cancels our record of debt that stood against us. There was a record of our sin and that stood against us. It was like a witness on the witness stand naming out all of our trespass, all of our rebellion, all of the times that our hearts desired and went after something less than God. It stood against us with its legal demands, which is what? Our legal demands is the punishment of death. So these witnesses lined up against us. And it says, this he set aside, nailing it to the cross. What would often happen in a crucifixion is that the, 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 the sentence or the judgment of the individual would, would be nailed to the cross, like a sign above the cross saying what crimes the, the, the person had committed as a way of communicating to the community around him, you commit that sign, this is the judgment that is due you. You commit that sin, this is the judgment that is due you. Which you remember, Jesus had a a crime of being the king of the Jews nailed nailed to his cross. But the picture here is he set the record of debt that accused us of sin, he nailed it to Jesus' cross and so Jesus took the punishment that was due for our infractions. Like that's the, that's the power of the cross. That's how he dealt with all of our sin. He nailed it to the cross of Jesus as opposed to us taking the punishment on ourselves. Now, it gets better This is a picture of the triumphant warrior, King Jesus. He disarms the rulers and authorities. He put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. The scene here is still a battle scene. We are in a world at war. We are born into a cosmic battle. And because of the cosmic battle that we are born into, I believe that God has written battle on, the, on our hearts. He has written something of, of kingdom advancement. Uh, my, my son, uh, it's actually my son-in-law's birthday today, and um, one of the things that he did over six years for his birthday is have pizza and a movie. And he watched um, all three of the Hobbits and all three of the Lord of the Rings. Yesterday, he had friends over, they were gonna watch a movie, and like none of them were like, um, let's watch um, Fixer Upper or let's watch uh, Pride and Prejudice. Or like all of the movies were movies that carried that same who's going to win the day sort of theme. What's the epic battle that's going to be fought? And there's going to be a victor. There's going, to be a, there's going to be a challenge, and there's going to be a win, and we are drawn to epic battles, whether in video games, whether in movies, whether, whether in novels, whether in Disney fairy tales. We are drawn to these epic struggles. Why? I think it's because we know deep within us we are born into a world at war, and there is this epic narrative that's going on, and it's part of us. And it's written on our hearts and we long for a conquest. We long for a king. We long for history to be moving in a direction where there's a final consummation and a final victory. And the biblical narrative is just such a narrative. God is the creator. He's created all things. He created angels, he created demons. In Ezekiel 28, Isaiah 14, we see that Satan out of the pride of his heart, which is like the origin of all sin, has to do with pride. So out of the pride of his heart, um, he, he, he seduced a third of the angels to make war against God. He was condemned then to earth. Now the story picks up, right, in Genesis chapter 3 in the form of a serpent while still trying to make war against God, is going to do that by making war against his creation. That's the storyline out of the book of Revelation, which interprets back. So he's making war against creation, and our first parents committed treason and were seduced by the enemy and were traitors by their own choice. And, And throughout history, we have seen Person after person is a traitor by birth and by choice. And and the Old Testament history records an ongoing treason of humanity as God would seek to rescue his people, but his people would eventually rebel against God. We preached a whole sermon series through the book of Judges, which was just a, a little microcosm of what's been going on throughout human history of the people of God rejecting him. And then God finally says, I will send the perfect king, the perfect deliverer. And so Jesus steps onto the planet, the embodiment of God. And what does Satan and demons, what do they try and do? Well, there's this this mass move and and all of these children are murdered as a way of trying to, to destroy the son of God. As Jesus is moving towards his Uh, Ministry. what does Satan do? He moves towards Jesus to try to seduce him, to come under uh, his authority in order to bypass the suffering that was part of his destiny. And what had been a spiritual battle kind of behind the scenes, as Jesus stepped onto planet Earth, that spiritual battle intensified as we would see Satan seducing the men Around Jesus, Satan would even uh, Jesus would even warn them. Satan has desired to sift you as wheat, and so Judas is willing to betray Jesus with a kiss, and and so one of the twelve that are part of Jesus's kingdom and Jesus's team in this epic battle, he is lost to the enemy in an effort to destroy Jesus. And then Jesus is on the cross. And I would just imagine that Satan and his demons are thinking the greatest victory is on us. And as Jesus yelled, it is finished, I would imagine they cheered in victory at to what they had accomplished. But then three days later, Jesus flipped the script. He turned the corner, and Jesus rose from the dead. Death would have no victory over the God-man. And that's when Paul brings us to this moment in verse 15, says that Jesus disarmed the rulers and authorities. And when Jesus said, it is finished, he was not saying the, the, the work of God has lost. He's saying, it's finished. Victory has been won. I have reconciled man to God. I have done what I have been called to do. The wrath of God and the the payment of debt, right? that, That stood against him has been nailed to my cross. It is finished. So he disarms the rulers and authorities. He puts them to open shame. I want, you to, I want you to see two things again. This is a wartime picture. What would typically happen is as two uh, opposing en- uh, armies would fight, the victor then would take the spoils, right, would, would take the, the people, the spoils captive, and then march through their city with their spoils in tow. And that's exactly what's happening here but remember our storyline. So what Jesus has done is he has defeated Satan and Satan's captives, which is us. And instead of him making us his slaves, he makes us his sons. And so he rescues us from the domain of darkness That was Colossians chapter 1, and into the kingdom of his beloved son. So we are not part of his train of captives, right? We are part of his family of worshipers. But what I want you to see is that he disarms the rulers and authorities and puts them to open shame, What does that mean? He puts them to open shame. That means he demonstrates that they have no authority. They have no power. But I also want you to see they still seem to be around. They're still present. So while Jesus has ultimately defeated the enemy, the enemy hasn't gone away. That's still part of the future that is to come. So that's why Paul is giving them this warning. Listen, foundationally, the enemy's been defeated. He's been disarmed. He has no power over you. He is not an authority, but he's around, so be careful. It's like a, a, a snake that, has, uh, that, that its head's been cut off, but it's still dangerous. It's dying, but it's still dangerous. We're living in wartime. The victory's been won but it's still dangerous. So as we close our service, I wanna have you stand up. I wanna have you sing this song because I wanna have you anchored in the foundational truths that Jesus is present, that Jesus is victorious, that Jesus is king, but it's a wartime.